Welcome to Trending in Education. Mike Palmer here. I'm very happy today to be rejoined by Dr. John Shelton, who is an associate professor of democracy and justice studies at the University of Wisconsin, Green Bay. He's also the vice president of higher education at AFT Wisconsin. We're going to talk today about John's new book, The Education Myth, How Human Capital Trumped Social Democracy. Definitely was a book that made me think, hopefully, our listeners will be provoked and stimulated in similar ways. We had John first on the show back in September of 2020, which feels like a lifetime ago. It's great to have you back, John. Welcome back to Trending in Education. Thanks so much for having me, Mike. And you're right. So much has changed since September of 2020. It feels almost like a different world. Yeah, yeah. And we were talking about labor. And at that time, the context was very different, particularly from, you know, the teachers unions. It was very much about protecting the health and safety of teachers as frontline workers. There's a lot to talk about around how education intersects with other aspects of our culture, including the history of social movements, the history of labor, and some of these other elements that have been part of your background. In case folks didn't listen to our first episode, we'll include a link to it in our show notes. It's quite interesting looking at what 2020 was and thinking about how, you know, at the time the MBA had just walked out due to the Jacob Blake incident in Kenosha, Wisconsin, and it was really led by the Milwaukee Bucks at the time. That history is far enough away that maybe we can start wrestling with it. But in case folks missed our first conversation, can you catch them up on what got you to this point in your career? Yeah. So my first book was called Teacher Strike, and that was published in 2017. And it really looked at the connection between teacher unions and public education and, you know, American politics in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And so coming out of that, you know, I was really thinking a lot about public education as a political problem. So when we talked in 2020, I was in the middle of a one-year fellowship from the National Academy of Education, you know, which funds these postdoctoral fellowships. And, you know, I was all excited because I took the postdoc in calendar year 2020. Mm. So when, the, when the year started, I was like, I'm going to go do all this archival research. It's going to be great. I'm going to finally have some time to like kind of think. Then COVID happened, of course. So I went on like one research trip, um, yeah. did do some, some archival work. But, you know, then, then like our kids were home with us, you know, for the entire year. But I'd managed to write a book during that year nonetheless. And, you know, if anything good came out of it, it ended up being a kind of a different book because... You know, I couldn't do all the archival research that I wanted to do. So what I ended up doing was using the archival research I had done, but just deciding to go really big picture and look at this problem of education over time. And I was, you know, driven by the Trump election in 2016 and what had gone on there and this huge gulf between voters with college degrees who voted for Clinton and voters without college degrees who voted for Trump. And also, you know, kind of driven by the outlook of a lot of my students, you know, what it was that they saw their future as and how they thought about higher education. So I went really big and ended up writing a book that essentially kind of covers the entire sweep of American history. That wasn't my initial intention. Mm -hmm. It's called The Education Myth. And what the book argues is that for most of American history, there were some exceptions, but Americans didn't think about education as reducible to human capital. That was very much secondary, if not something that nobody was thinking about for most of American history. And working people, when they were trying to advocate for economic security and pushing for it, they were actually doing things like organizing unions and pushing for reforms. This thing I call in the book social democracy from about World War II, you know, till the end of the 1970s, this idea of social democracy competes with this rising idea of human capital mm -hmm. that comes from these economists, which we can get more into, 
that what education should do is be about investing in job training and job skills to help you do better in the labor market. The education myth is the idea that human capital investment in, in human capital can overcome all of the other economic and social inequalities that exist. That idea has really crushed social democratic alternatives over the last 40 or 50 years and helps to explain why our politics are so divided right now and why so many people in this country feel disempowered with our political system. I, I'm not saying that's the only reason, but that's one major reason that people really haven't, I think, thought enough about. It's a great read. The other book that I've referenced that it reminds me of is Michael Sandel's book, The Tyranny of Merit. This, to me, is a deeper dive into the educational side of that conversation. In both cases, it is talking about the rise of populism, referred to frequently as Trumpism, you know, feeding into the alienation and disengagement of generally those who don't have a college degree. And then what I liked about the book in particular is the, the depth to which you explain and remind us of the framing where for me, you know, like a fish in water, sometimes you don't see the environment. And then I will say by the time I was through the book and really thinking about how often human capital is the primary and frequently the only frame that is applied to thinking about education, educational policy. The future of work is the other lens that I think it maps very closely to the other language that is very popular out there. Can you talk a little more about the history of human capital as a term? Because it's an interesting point where, you know, there is an intellectual movement here that in some ways has been successful in terms of its prominence. But now, whether it actually works, I think there's more fundamental questioning. And in many ways, your book is kind of supporting at least that critical look at human capital. But can you catch us up a little more on the history of thinking about human capital and applying it to education? Yeah, absolutely. So what happens is a couple of prominent economists at the University of Chicago really come up with the term human capital, or at least popularize it, the term human capital in the economics profession. That's Theodore Schultz and Gary Becker. And they were different politically. So Theodore Schultz is more of kind of a neo-Keynesian. Uh, Becker is this kind of more libertarian type who we would kind of associate more with Milton Friedman, the sort of famous economist from Chicago. But they're writing about this in the 1950s. And it's really fascinating because Becker actually writes about how in the late 1950s and early 60s, that when they're using this term, it was really difficult for them to use it because the association that people had with the term human capital was of enslaved people, right? Because enslaved people were actually treated as literal human capital. They could be used for collateral and loans, for example, yeah. they were seen as a means of production, essentially, because they weren't getting any you know, wages for their labor. So Becker was basically like, hey, this is difficult because that's the association people have. We kind of have to rehabilitate it. But the term human capital inverts the kind of labor relationship that exists under capitalism, right? Human capital is the idea that individuals sell their labor and their own skills and capabilities are something that they can improve to turn a bigger profit for themselves in the labor market, right? Mm -hmm. It's literally talked about that way. And it just covers up what's actually happening because every employer, when they employ somebody, they employ them because they are taking some of the value that person is producing. You don't have to be a hardcore Marxist to understand that. You don't have to be a Marxist at all to understand that. I ask my students this all the time, you know, why is Quick Trip this local, you know, gas station? And it's a kind of a Wisconsin staple. Why is Quick Trip hiring you? They're not doing it out of the goodness of their heart. They're doing it because you're adding something to what they're producing and they're making money off of it. That's how it works. So this idea that people can just go out and get better job skills and that will make them more marketable 
it's true to a certain extent, right? I mean, it, it wouldn't have any resonance if it weren't true. Many times when people get more education, they actually are able to get a job that they couldn't get before, and that job often pays more. But it creates the fantasy that these folks have a lot more agency over what's happening in the job market, right? Because people can't control what the macroeconomic conditions are in society, right? Whether you have a Federal Reserve that's like actively trying to induce a recession, you know, to stamp out inflation. They can't control whether they live in a state where it's easy for them to unionize or they have an employer that's fighting them tooth and nail to prevent them from organizing like at Starbucks. They can't prevent whether they live in a city where there are jobs, as in the case in so many American inner cities. They can't control the racism and sexism of their employers, which Gary Becker talked about as tastes in quotation marks. All these things are out of people's control. But what human capital does is it does a lot of work because it tells people that they have so much more control over the labor market than they actually do. And that, as we'll talk about more, makes it easier to basically say, well, we don't need these other social reforms because if you just give people the right education, they're going to be fine. Right, right. Having worked in the private sector and having done a lot of you know, financial modeling, spreadsheets, et cetera, thinking of human capital is very much something that happens at a leadership level, strategic level in the corporate world, private sector, and increasingly those models are translating into higher ed. This is partly where folks talk about how the administrative side of higher ed is becoming kind of bloated with marketers who are trying to build experiences that will then justify the students spending a premium to attend higher education. You know, the same thing really applies if you think about professional development and enterprise learning. In those contexts, it's what's the return on my investment on the education. And then the last piece, I think, is that it does create this race to the top where individuals are trying to get to the top of their class so that they can get into the elite universities, that they can then lead the industries and actually think about human capital and have access to the most human capital to lead the breadth of the idea. The fact that you were forced to pull back to think about this through a broader lens, I think is really beneficial. It also brings up the question of, so what do we do? Frequently, if things are systemic and you know deeply ensconced, it's tricky to change. I guess part of what you do is you get the conversation going, raise awareness. We're about to head into a presidential election campaign. Education is probably going to be more central to the conversation, perhaps, than it has been in previous years, based on some of what we've seen. I'd love to get a snapshot from your perspective of where are we right now in terms of education, the education myth, and the types of things you're focused on. Yeah. So, you know, you're absolutely right, Mike. You know, there's been an entire ecosystem constructed around human capital. I want to get back to your question, but I want to answer it by just quickly, you know, kind of setting some context. I love Michael Sandel's book. It's a brilliant book for all the reasons that you talked about. The reason that the historical story that I'm telling here is essential is I think I had two things that Sandel doesn't do. One, talk about how this human capital or education myth was constructed. And that's really important because if it's constructed, it's an ecosystem that we can change, right? Mm -hmm. We can take apart and we can build something else. And the second thing that I think I do is I offer us a way out of this. And the way out of this is through the social democratic promise that mm -hmm. is in American history. I'm not saying it's perfect, but the history is important because Sandel, I love his book, but he doesn't really, I think, offer a satisfactory way out of this. Social democracy is the idea that what government should do is enhance social and economic rights for Americans. 
And from the 40s until the 70s, there was a social democratic promise that really ran through the core of American history, right? You see this with the Wagner Act, FDR's Economic Bill of Rights in 1944, which promises the right to a job, housing, healthcare, education. Mm -hmm. You see this with the Freedom Budget, Bayard Rustin and A. Philip Randolph in the 1960s, who link economic security for everybody to civil rights. You see this with the Humphrey Hawkins Act in the 1970s, which had widespread support, but really not support from the Carter administration. So a stronger version of it kind of died. And so the education myth really grew in prominence. And you can trace this through the past few decades, right? Everything from No Child Left Behind to all those things that you're talking about in higher ed and mm -hmm. that's push for human capital investment. Now, what's fascinating though is, and I think the reason that I was able to think about this ecosystem differently is because we're seeing cracks in the education myth right now from both parties. So if you look at the 2016 election, it was really essential because on the one hand, on the left, you have the Bernie Sanders phenomenon, mm -hmm. which think back to 2016, 2015 even, nobody thought Bernie had a chance to do anything in that primary. That's why really he was the only person who ran against Hillary Clinton because she was kind of seen as the nominee. Right. And she was a human capital candidate running in sort of the same trajectory as both Bill Clinton and Barack Obama. Mm -hmm. You know, I can remember her launch speech, which I write about in the book, where she basically talks education and job training is a central part of what she advocated for in her launch speech, which ironically was at Four Freedoms Park yeah. in Brick City right. uh, and spoke to Roosevelt, but took all the wrong lessons. So what Bernie was doing was challenging all that and saying, all Americans deserve more social and economic rights. We're not going to kind of go along with this, these neoliberal ideas anymore. And he was saying things like, maybe not everybody needs to go to college. They can go into the trades, but they have to have strong unions in order to be able to be successful. And then on the right, of course, you have Trump who, you know, basically kind of just completely took over the party, of course, with this idea that he was going to protect blue collar jobs. He was going to renegotiate these trade deals. And of course, you know, he wasn't offering anybody anything that was a systemic solution. He just said, I'm going to like, you know, bully, you know, employers to basically stay here. So it was a complete fantasy. But, you know, if you have one candidate essentially saying, there's a lot of things I admire about Hillary Clinton, but, you know, saying like, you know, we're going to put coal miners out of business. And another candidate saying, I'm going to save your blue collar jobs. Well, you know, you can understand how some people, I don't want to reduce the 2016 election to this. There were like literal white supremacists supporting Trump, but right. you can see how complicated it is. So I think what we've seen is that idea of the education myth. It, I won't say that it's totally been destroyed, but it is under duress. And there are cracks that we're seeing. Yeah. And, you know, you can even see it in the Biden administration. He said something really important in his last State of the Union address, which I don't know if a lot of people caught, but he basically said something like, you shouldn't have to move to have a good job. Now, that is such a huge shift, even though it seems subtle, a huge shift from the kinds of things the Clintons and Obama were saying, hey, we're going to have these trade deals, but you may have to move somewhere. We may have to get you new job skills, but it's going to be fine. There's a returning focus to economic security for all working people. That is the way out. And so what that means is, we have to keep a laser focus on that, not tell people you have to go to college to get a good job, but every single person, whether you go to college or not, we should keep a laser focus on making sure that you're going to have the promise of economic security. And it's going to take time, but it's not just about changing the conversation. If I just wanted to change the conversation, I wouldn't have written this book. I do want to do that, but it's going to take activism from us. We have to make this argument in every space we're in. We have to have people run for office on the idea. We have to have people push their politicians who are representing them 
to hold them accountable for these ideas and where this really comes into play, because you mentioned education and how it's going to be this divisive issue, especially around the culture wars, is we cannot let the right weaponize culture ideas to divide us on this issue of education. We have to keep a focus on economic security, push our politicians to do that, and basically say, we're not going to let you divide us with these culture wars. And what we really need is good jobs and economic security for every person who works for a living. And we can find that in our past. It's there. It's not perfect. We can come up with a better version of it, but it's there. Yeah, it's powerful stuff. The movement of folks who earn less than $25,000, less than $30,000, who also don't have a college degree, the movement of those demographics, the percentage who have been voting for a Republican versus a Democratic candidate is an interesting trend. I don't even know how debatable it is. The 2016 election in many ways was lost by alienating, you know, working class folks who historically have voted for the Democrat. It's a place where the frame, the existing frame, the meritocratic, you know, technocratic frame of we'll get everybody a degree. And the problem has been access to that degree. Once they get that degree, everything else is great. We're both not able to deliver on that promise. There's movement in a positive direction here, but we're not getting everyone a college degree. If it is two thirds of the country who don't have a college degree, how do you run a successful political campaign that is talking about how, well, only a third of you have made it to this point? The rest of you, how do we get you there? I mean, that to me seems to be a more profound change. Why focus on clearing that hurdle if it isn't necessarily going to open up pathways for everyone? There's a number of problems with that assumption. First of all, my friend here and colleague in the UW system, Neil Krauss, who's a professor at UW River Falls, has a book coming out in October called The Fantasy Economy. Neil and I talk all the time, and one of the things that he points out is that if you just look at the Bureau of Labor Statistics numbers, the vast majority of jobs don't require a college degree, and they're not projected to require a college degree for some time. Mm -hmm. So what that means is, number one, you know, even if we could get everybody a college degree, and I think everybody who wants one should be able to get one, by the way. I think universities should be tuition free, and that's something we should be pushing for. But th the reality is, and this is a quote directly from Neil, actually, we don't control the labor market in education. So we can't ensure that all of those jobs these jobs that don't require college degrees are good jobs or manufacture new jobs that require college degrees just because there's more graduates. And one of the things to point out is that the fissures that you see in the Democratic Party, many of those young people who voted for Sanders in 2016 were people who had college degrees, but were underemployed or were working at jobs that essentially didn't really require one like Starbucks. Look right. at the Starbucks workers who are organizing and how many of them are either in college or have college degrees right now, right? Mm -hmm. This promise isn't working even for those people, but yeah. And then you say the two thirds of the people that don't have them, even if you can bring that number up to 50%, you're right. still half the population. And this is something Sandel points out that's really important in his book. They don't deserve social esteem. Only path to having full citizenship and economic security is through a college degree. So all those people... Not only are they economically precarious, many of them, but they don't enjoy social esteem. Mm -hmm. And so when you think about the 2016 election and folks who voted for Trump, one of the numbers that I found the most interesting when I was looking at this are the number of voters. It's hard to get precise numbers, but something like five to seven million voters who voted for Obama in 2008 and Trump in 2016. Yeah. Now, it's hard for me to imagine that those people were white supremacists, right? They were voting for the Obama, and I write about this in the book, who promised you know, when he was in the primary in 2008, that he was going to do things differently and stop focusing on trade deals that helped out corporations and make it easier for workers to organize. And he gave this speech. 
in Janesville, right? You probably remember in 2008, this big conversation about the GM plant that was about to close and it did close. It was a huge discussion point in that election. And then, you know, comes into office and sides with the bankers, you know, during the economic crisis and doesn't help out individual mortgage owners, does nothing to reform labor, and then starts pushing for the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which became, you know, this sort of thing that was weaponized by Trump and the campaign in 2016. So yeah. you tie all these things together and, you know, those folks were basically saying like, we're tired of this in 2008, we're tired of this Washington DC that's a fake meritocracy. We want something different. And I don't want to put all this on Obama, but the point is that the Democratic Party, however you want to slice it, didn't deliver on that. And so many of those people were like, well, let's try something else. The other concept that's in your book that is something that language that has resonated with me is the idea of the dignity of work. FDR's Bill of Rights from his inaugural address in 1944, which is really how you kick off your book. It is interesting that education is so far down the list. It's there and it is something that the right to an education is critical, but so is the right to a job or the right to membership in a union, you know, which ideally gives you that sense of community or that sense of meaning. I've made it this far in the conversation without talking about artificial intelligence and automation, but that is the other component when I think about the dignity of work and when I think about what it means to be human and how do we really validate the meaning and value in everyone's life, not necessarily through the lens of how much human capital they control. Things are changing even more profoundly now where in some ways the need for labor, organized labor unions to be able to protect individual rights as AI and new technologies come in and drive these new waves of automation. And then also the fact that, you know, ultimately folks who are making decisions about how they lead their organizations, Elon Musk famously cut Twitter's workforce significantly. And, you know, arguably from a human capital perspective, there's a playbook there that folks will see some positives from like, oh, I can cut two thirds of my workforce and still be able to get to break even profitable a lot faster. That's really appealing to me. How do you see us navigating these sort of conflicting frames? Yeah. So first of all, I want to just say that, you know, all of this discussion about artificial intelligence, you know, chatbot, GPT, all this stuff, you know, it really underscores how utterly absurd it is to hold individual people responsible for their own human capital investment. And let me explain what I mean by that. So when we talk to students, say in college, right, and I advise a lot of students, and in spite of, you know, my criticism, a lot of these things, I'm also very pragmatic with them because I want them to be able to get jobs. They need to, right? It would be ridiculous for me not to do that. But what you're basically telling students who are, let's just say a traditional college age student, that at the age of 18 to 22, they need to figure out what the right thing to major in is and so that they can get on the right career pathway. And by the way, they better be able to predict what the labor market's going to look like 15 years later, right? If they're going to be successful. And, you know, how in the world could anybody predict, you know, that there would be, you know, this AI that can essentially write, you know, generic forms of essays. There's no way that you could predict that, right? So you have somebody who's, you know, going into a certain field without that assumption. There's no way they could know that, right? So it's absurd to blame individuals for not being like present enough. But that's the implicit thing that we do with human capital, right? Oh, well, you know, you went to college, but you really majored in the wrong thing. You should have majored in the thing that was going to still be around 20 years from now. Right. So, so, right. So that's number one. We have to stop doing that. And that's all the more reason to think about what we do at the university as giving students not just a broad array of skills, 
but also the capacity, as Daniel Allen writes about the connection between democracy and education, the capacity to advocate for themselves and organize and make their world better and more just so that you don't have billionaires like Elon Musk holding the livelihoods of people hostage and just able to like, you know, throw them out on the street on a whim. Mm -hmm. um, now, having said that, and it pains me to say this, but a, a couple of weeks ago, Elon Musk, if you remember, was one of a group of people who said, we need to put a pause on artificial intelligence and kind of think about things. It pains me to agree with Elon Musk, but I think in an ideal world, where we had a responsive democracy, what we would do is we would have that conversation as a society. I'm not a Luddite. You know, technological advances in general open up so many new doors for people. And I'm also not one of these people who are like, I'm going to try to stamp out every use of chat GPT in my classes when I teach. There are ways that we can use this. I remember a few years ago, you know, everybody was like, no, you can't ever let your students use Wikipedia. It's, you know, it's kind of bad. Yeah. Now everybody uses it for everything, right? And I'll tell students like, what year did that happen? Go look it up on Wikipedia right now in class, you know? Yeah, yeah. So these things can be liberatory, but here's the thing. We have to have a conscious conversation about what it means to things like the future of work. You don't have that when you have a democracy that largely focuses on enhancing the profit-making potential of corporations. Mm -hmm. So I would really encourage people to read a book by John Nichols and Robert McChesney called People Get Ready. I forget the subtitle, but it's basically about like what happens if we have a jobless future. And their argument is, look, there are all these things that we do, like driving. We're far away from self-driving cars, obviously. But like, you know, these things that people do that, that maybe aren't the most fulfilling jobs, like let's figure out a way to liberate people from those jobs. But we also can't create a class of, you know, second tier citizens who you know, don't have a way to contribute to society, you know, don't have the dignity of their labor, for example, yeah. and don't have economic security. And so it's really essential that when we think about all these things like AI and tech, that we think about how they are actually being used to serve people as A. Philip Randolph talked about a lot, this really important labor leader in the 60s, how they serve people instead of serving profits. That's the conversation we absolutely have to have. And unfortunately, right now, because we've lost this premise of social democracy, we're not so much having that conversation. So whenever we talk about tech, the thing I would remind people of is that there's no air of inevitability about how these things are used, right? We have to organize and make sure that they're actually serving to liberate us and not just giving more tools, you know, to people who already have a lot of power to take more power away from ordinary workers. Yeah, it's interesting. A lot of people forget Martin Luther King Jr.'s connection to understanding the the role that, you know, distributive justice and a lot of these other elements that really were more true to a social history that was prominent really right up until the 60s. This really has been maybe a 60-year run now of these policies being in effect. Looking back and then maybe looking ahead, if there were a new era of social democracy on the horizon, how would you see that playing forward? All the futurists I talk to say it's useful to think about different scenarios just so you can kind of imagine how some of this stuff may play forward. I do think with automation, it's likely that jobs will be disrupted more fundamentally. And then particularly jobs in education will need to shift to keep up with all of this. As someone who thinks a lot about education, labor, and where these social movements lead, Looking a little bit further out, can you give us a positive and then maybe get into some of the more negative frames? Yeah, absolutely. And so to do that, I want to go back to King for just a minute, because when you talked about King, there is a reason that we, and I mean, we as society writ large, 
have kind of a sanitized version of King when we celebrate King Day every January. King was a major endorser for the Freedom Budget, which was this thing that A. Philip Randolph, this proposal that A. Philip Randolph and Bayard Rustin, these two labor activists, came up with in the 1960s as kind of the next step in the civil rights movement. So this was 1966, after the Civil Rights Act, after the Voting Rights Act. And, you know, th these two had been, and others had been pushing, and King, by the way, pushing for economic justice for African-Americans the entire way. But what this Freedom Budget offered was a huge expenditure of funding to, you know, revitalize American cities, ensure that there were good jobs there, ensure that there was good housing for everybody, ensure that there was a good education system for everybody, right? And what they understood was that if you did that for everybody, that would not set people against each other because everybody would get essentially these promises, but that it would disproportionately help African-Americans because they were the poorest and the most harmed by this, you know, racial capitalism that existed in the United States in the 20th century. Mm -hmm. So I'm not advocating for that specifically, but I think one of the problems with, you know, the New Deal and the promise of the New Deal is that there were a number of racial inequalities that existed there. There was a model that was built on the idea that you have a male breadwinner at the head of a family, right? So we can take the best of those promises, something like the freedom budget, and think about a program of social democratic promises for today and it's really not that hard. I mean, most of the things that, you know, we would want in a set of social and economic rights, they poll at very high levels. I mean, most people want universal health care in this country. Even people who have health care know how much it sucks to have to like haggle with an insurance company to get your claims paid. Most people understand that having a good home, as King was fighting for in his last days when he was assassinated by a white supremacist, that's something that's essential. They understand that childcare is essential and not something that most people now can afford on their own. Right. So these are things that the vast majority of Americans want. And so to me, like, I'm not a futurist, I'm a historian, but I am an optimist though. And I think about the kind of future that we need and the kind of future that we should have. So what makes me hopeful about this, okay, is that we have a choice in the next decade or so, all right? What we are doing right now, uh, a form of, you know, middle ground neoliberalism that, you know, like kind of looks for the most moderate candidate to try and, you know, prevent fascism or whatever. That's not sustainable, right? It's not sustainable in terms of most people. The vast majority of people in this country, even if they have college degrees, are not seeing their wages go up when you adjust for inflation and certainly not go up connected to productivity. So most people are feeling economically insecure and that's been exacerbated by inflation. That's not going to stop right? Most people feel disaffected with the political system. So we have really two choices as a society. We either reinvest in a form of social democracy that allows people to see a set of greater possibilities in the future, right? That we can liberate ourselves from, you know, the kind of work in which people feel disempowered and like their boss has all of the power and an education system that reduces them to nothing but human capital. We can liberate ourselves from that by raising our expectations and then fighting for them. Or, you know, what we are going to have is, I mean, you look at the direction the right is going with this culture war stuff. Most of that culture war stuff is deeply unpopular, by the way. LGBTQ rights are polling at something like 70 to 75%, including about two thirds of Republicans in this country. You know, th that stuff is kind of unpopular. But if the left doesn't figure out a way forward to enhance working people's lives and make them better and give them hope for a better future and real hope that, we can see some things changing, 
then we are going to get some kind of right-wing reaction. You know, you've seen the precursor to this with Trump. So those are really the two scenarios. You can look back on this 10 years from now if you want, and I promise you one of those two things is going to happen. It is. And so for me, like, I'm hopeful because I do see the education myth, you know, kind of falling apart. And I see in particular young people fighting for a better future, wanting to do things differently, but we have to move it in the right direction. And, and I'm hopeful that that's going to happen. I wouldn't be doing this if I weren't, right? I'd be in a bunker somewhere, you know, but Americans have done hard things to cultivate greater democracy in the past. If you look at smashing slavery during the Civil War, if you look at the New Deal, right, we've done these things before and we'll do them again because we have that in our DNA, but we have to fight for them. And I think that's going to happen. Yeah. It's interesting how some of these external factors like automation, we didn't really go into the pandemic, you know, as well, where like the ways in which people's thinking was shook at a foundational level to the point where they were thinking differently about things like education, like childcare, even the level to which folks were supported by the federal government through this real hardship. That was only really hypothetical, theoretical until we went through the exigencies of the last few years. So I do think there is an opportunity for a new awakening. I would recommend folks check out John's book, The Education Myth, if you want to go deeper into some of what we talked about. We're getting close to a conclusion here. John, thanks again for being on the show. We didn't get into any of the activity, really wearing more your AFT hat, but anything else going on in the world of education or labor that you want to make sure we touch on before we wrap up? Yeah, I mean, you're seeing faculty and staff at institutions of higher education really fight for a better future, too. And, you know, when I was talking about what we do about this, this is something that I do every day. And, you know, I'm proud to be the president of my union at UW-Green Bay. We've got a number of other really good labor leaders in this state, like Chad Goldberg, who I know you know, and Neil Krauss, who I mentioned. And, you know, what we're doing in Wisconsin is we are organizing and pushing for a different direction for our universities every day, even without collective bargaining rights. And our students, I, I don't know how much listeners have been paying attention to Wisconsin elections, but you know we've had two elections in the last year in which Republicans and this politics of division, heavily woven into this culture war stuff, by the way, they're losing at the state level, right? We just elected a state Supreme Court justice by 11 points, and now we're going to have a chance to get fair maps and protect women's reproductive rights and potentially even overturn Act 10, that came because, you know, lots of public employees and other workers organized and made sure that people voted. But it mainly came because young people voted. The numbers on our campus in Wisconsin were through the roof. And so that makes me really hopeful about the future. So that's really important. And then you look at, you know, some of the labor conflicts that have been happening at Rutgers where the faculty and staff union there won largely with the support of students. And folks are probably paying attention to this too, or maybe they're not, they should be. Grad workers at Michigan who have been on strike, it's getting nasty there. Their administration is really playing hardball, but they have a lot of solidarity and they're fighting for a different future too. They're fighting for one in which everybody who works on a campus should get you know, a sustainable future and sustainable income. And that really is the fight for social democracy when we fight for these things. So We've got to weave in the intellectual argument about, you know, we've got to stop saying that we're, you know, responsible for the labor market and training people directly for jobs. We've got to talk about the bigger things that education can do and how it can, you know, be so essential in the, in the fight for democracy. But our students are primed for that, right? Because they're coming out and showing up at the polls and supporting these struggles for a different university at places like Rutgers and Michigan. 
So yeah, I'm deeply embedded in that work and it kind of ties seamlessly to the intellectual work that I'm doing. And it, and it feels great to be able to be part of something that I think is, you know, going to be a, a massive shift toward a more democratic future in this country. Great stuff with Dr. John Shelton out of University of Wisconsin, Green Bay. His book's called The Education Myth. Check it out. It's out there in the world, everywhere you can get books. John, thank you so much for joining me on today's show. Thanks, Mike. It's been a pleasure. And for our listeners, hopefully you enjoyed what you heard. If you did, please write a review, tell your friends, do all the good things. We'll be back again soon. This is Trending in Education. 